If you are between the ages of four years old to the second grade, you're excused to Kids Club. If you've been with us much this summer, you note that we are walking through an, a number of psalms this summer. We've called our series Psalms, Songs for Real Life. Just the reality as you pour through the book of Psalms, how they take us into real life situations. And that they give us the words to speak, the words to pray, the words to seek God through any number of a variety of situations. And as we've walked through some psalms, it's given us a chance to look at confession for sin like we did in Psalm 51 or asking God to lead us as we did in Psalm 23. We've worked through a lot of them. And this, this morning we're walking into Psalm 63, which is really a unique psalm, a psalm of coming to the wilderness. So as we dig into that, we'll start the way we've started all of them. I've been giving you a quote to begin with. This is John Perone, a 19th century Anglican theologian. That's what he said. He says, As the whole book of Psalms is an ointment, poured out upon all sorts of sores, a surcloth that supplies all of bruises, a balm that searches all wounds. So there are some certain Psalms that are imperial Psalms that command over all of our affections, that spread themselves over all occasions, Catholic, universal Psalms, that apply themselves to all necessities. And this is one of these psalms, an imperial psalm of sorts, Psalm 63. Let me read it for us this morning. Psalm 63, a psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And as we walk into this 63rd Psalm, we, they all have a heading, at least a lot of them do. And this one says, a Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And you'd be really tempted at this moment to wonder what the wilderness looks like. Well, what is this saying? Is this suggesting that David was going camping? Perhaps he, he pitched his tent, got a sleeping bag. Maybe he went out to the boundary waters and, and, and sought some rest or place away. And in fact, we're going to find that's not exactly his situation. There are several places we could fit Psalm 63 in the scriptures. But when you notice his reference to being the king at the end, it really does narrow it down to 2 Samuel 15. And it provides a really striking context. So let's turn there for a moment. In 2 Samuel 15, just to give you a little background to this passage, 
King David has sent for his son Absalom to return to Jerusalem. And his son does return. And immediately Absalom sets against his father to turn the nation of Israel against him. Let me read this for you. 2 Samuel 15, 2 through 6. And Absalom used to rise early and stand before the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king of, for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such, a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to him, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You start to see what this wilderness is going to look like for David. As his son starts to turn the whole nation against him, sets forth day by day, turning one after another away from his father and towards his graciousness. And the story continues a couple of chapters later. As now Absalom has claimed the throne, he says this in 2 Samuel 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. And I will strike down only the king. This is the wilderness that David finds himself in. Even Ahithophel and Absalom understand this. When they plot to find David weary and discouraged. When they desire to throw him into a panic to see him flee. This describes this wilderness that David's in. And this wilderness, you find it throughout the scriptures. It's a metaphor commonly used for a dry and desolate place. Much like the place in Matthew 4 when Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan takes a work to tempt him. The wilderness is a hard place. It's a trying place. It's a dry place and it's a desolate place. And it's possible that this is a place you'd find yourself this morning. Perhaps you feel like you're in a dry place, a desperate place where you're wanting to reach out for God for nourishment and he feels so far off. Or maybe your desert is more physical. Maybe it's a relational desert or even a marital desert where you feel isolated, you feel dry, and you wonder if things could change in desperation. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, Take heed to David's words in Psalm 63. And as we've walked through all these psalms, we stop and make this note. This may be where you are today, and if so, claim these words as your own. And if not, take note, because you'll probably find yourself somewhere and at some time, and you're going to have to come back to Psalm 63. Just like when we work through Psalm 51, we, we're not always in confession, but we need to know the places to go. If you're in a wilderness this morning, here's your psalm. And David begins in verse 1 by saying, Oh, God. And I can't help but think there's a pause. As he cries out to his father. And just for a moment, consider this desperate place and what he might be saying. 
Because it's easy for some of us in times of desperation where it's dry and desolate, we don't know where God is, to cry out, Oh God, where are you? Oh God, why? Why is this happening? God, why am I here? God, I don't deserve this. God, haven't you seen what I've done? God, don't you know who I am? But that's not what David cries out at all. In fact, David cries out, Oh God, you are my God. David makes a very bold and distinct truth claim. And as we've walked through the Psalms, we've pointed out these truth claims, these rocks, these anchors, where faithful men cling themselves to. And this is David's anchor. My God, you are my God. Many times in the Old Testament, when you read through it, you find yourself God, you find yourself reading God covenanting himself to his people. And God saying things like, and I will be your God and you will be my people. Beautiful passages. And here in the wilderness, David's proclaiming his relationship to God. You are my God. I'm in it all with you. Anything that happens, you're my God. You alone are sovereign. You alone are good. And this becomes David's foundational truth that carries him through the wilderness. In claiming this, John Piper says, in this moment, David reasserts the rock under the quicksand of his emotions. It's a truth claim. David clings to it because it's true. That doesn't mean he's feeling every aspect of it. In fact, that's the Piper, the reality of that Piper quote that you could be in the middle of a situation sinking in desperation because our emotions are stirring out of control. And yet there's a rock that we can cling to, and it's Jesus Christ. And here in this moment in the wilderness where David's son plotting to kill him, pursuing him, he anchors himself to the rock. And in Psalm 63, this truth claim, oh God, you are my God, is a foundational truth for anyone who wants to claim to follow Jesus. And if you can't claim this truth, then none of the rest of the psalm matters. They're just words on a piece of paper. These are important words. It's this truth that carried David. It's this truth that carried him through the desert. And if it's not yours, we have to ask the question, is he your God? Have you entered into a relationship with him so that you might claim him? Or bigger yet, that he would claim you? Romans 10.9 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And confessing in Jesus, confessing with your mouth that he is Lord, you acknowledge that he is over you. You acknowledge that you are in need of him. And you believe, you trust in your heart that God raised his son from the dead. The same way he could take us in our sin and in our mire and redeem us. He did with his son. We believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. In effect, God will be yours. He will be your God and you will be his people. 
And that's the truth claim that makes all the difference in the world. Regardless of the situation you find yourself in, But you have to see how crucial it is for David. Because in this dry and desolate place, that's what he clings to. That's his hope. Oh God, you are my God. And he continues, earnestly, I seek you. This can literally be translated, early in the morning, I look for you. David's putting that before, oh God, you are my God. You are the first thing I'm going to. You are the only hope I have. You're all I've got. A foundational scripture to me when I was in college was Jeremiah 29, 13. It says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And there are times and seasons in my life when I've asked, oh Lord, am I I not finding you because I'm not like seeking with my whole heart? Like am I a little divided? God, what's going on with me? And God's not a game player. He's not a trickster. But the reality is, are you earnestly seeking God? Guys, it's a great question for us to ask ourselves. Am I earnestly seeking God? Because in this dry and desolate place where David clings to the rock, he clings to God, that's his desire. That's why he's his God. Earnestly. First thing, I'm coming after you. You're the one thing that will help me. You're the thing that will carry me. And he continues on. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And he gives you this complete picture of himself and his overwhelming desire both inside his soul and outside his flesh. Yearning for the Lord. Is in a dry and a weary place where there is no water. David, like the rest of us, looks at his outside situation, feels where he's at spiritually and expresses it. David's in this dry and weary place. God is the only thing that will answer his issue, the only thing that will answer his problem, and the only refreshment in his situation. So this morning, if you are in a dry, a dreary, a desolate place, are you seeking for God? And let's be honest about that for a moment. Are you seeking for God? Now there's a reality in the context that suggests you could be sinking in quicksand. You could get wrapped up in emotions. You could let the context of everything else control who you are and where you're at. But are you clinging to the rock? Because that's David's move here that makes all the difference. It's that truth that carries him through this situation. He continues in verse 2. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now this is David we're talking about. You have to keep in mind David operates a little differently than we do. When David says, I look upon you in the sanctuary, David literally means I walked over to the temple. I appeared in the sanctuary. I engaged with God. David's reminded of this relationship he has with the Father. He's reminded of this communion, this fellowship with God. He remembers in this moment who God is. And the sweetness of his fellowship. And friends, if you're in a dry and desolate place, having a truth claim like, oh God, you are my God, 
That's where we anchor to. But we remember who God is, how he's carried us, what he's done in our lives. And as New Testament believers, we have to appreciate, we really have to appreciate how this verse pushes us into fellowship, how it pushes us into the church. See, in the Old Testament, God's presence was in the sanctuary of the temple. You wanted to meet with God, that's where you went. And in the New Testament, God's presence is manifested in the lives of believers. If you miss fellowship with God, you might consider finding some believers to cling to. You might find yourself moving towards community, that you might behold his power, you might behold his glory, and you might be held together. This is why as a church we have community groups. Not because we were trying to find some program to, to kind of whittle people down into to separate you out, but because we understand we really, really, really need relationships with one another. We need to cling together. We need to hold together so we can always be reminded of truth together. This is why we pull those things together. It's so important for us as a body to be gathered, to be connected, and to be doing life. That's David's point in verse 2. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power. I've beheld your glory. That's why the church gathers so that we can Behold the power and the glory of God. As David seeks after God, as he makes his truth claim, there's a practical side he deals with. And he suggests only God can satisfy. In verse 3, he continues on, says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And this is the verse that locates David. This is the verse that tells you that David's claim that, oh God, you are my God, is real and it's true. In the middle of this dry place, in the middle of the wilderness, fleeing from his son, David praises God. Why? Because his steadfast love, his hesed, his steadfast, covenant-keeping love. This picture of a God who will love us regardless of how far we fall. This God who covenants himself, commits himself to us. Because his steadfast, never-ending, never-stopping, always and forever love is better than life. Because of that, and David had to know the reality of it in that moment. I will praise you. Now cue into that for just a moment. What David's actually suggesting in the middle of a hard spot in his life, that who God is and how God loved him was more important than the situation he found himself in. It was bigger than the circumstances that were overwhelming him. It was more significant than the emotional place he found himself in. David located himself by understanding who God was, the reality of God and the truth of God in the midst of his life. And knowing God, being loved by him, is what allowed David, even in the midst of this, to be raised out of the hardship. 
You start to see this situation turn for him, where he could spend all of his time dwelling on, writing about, struggling with where he's at. But worship, worship is what pulls him through. Turning to God and worshiping him changes everything. This is the shift in David's mental process. I will praise you. I will praise you. Continues on in verse four. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David's confessing himself and he's putting his commitment before the Lord. Then not just in this moment will I continue to worship you. Not just in this moment will I pursue you, but I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I will bless you. I will worship you because of how you've loved me. In verse 5, he continues on, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. Now think about the wilderness again for a moment. David's probably pretty hungry. His flesh is going without, and yet he comments, my soul will be satisfied. My soul will be filled with fat and rich foods. Now he's not talking about Paula Dean here. He's talking about the word of God. You know, you have to appreciate in some level that the Hebrews had a, a, a higher prize on fat than we do. But that's the point he's going towards. My soul is satisfied by you. This is Matthew 4, 4 when Jesus says, being tempted, by the way, in the wilderness. Jesus responds to Satan by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We cling to the Father because he sustains us. Now, food is important. I'm not going to deny that. But it's God who carries us forward. Friends, if you're in a hard place, if you're in a dry place, eating a good meal can help. God will satisfy. It's only him finding yourself in him, realizing who he is, and cueing into his love that will satisfy you and will carry you through and will give you David's response. With my mouth, I will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. Which, by the way, he probably means when he puts his head on a rock. And I will meditate on you in the watches of the night which is a metaphor that points to this always pursuing, always seeking idea. That as David finds himself so isolated, his fellowship with God is what's carrying him through. Pursuing God is what's keeping him together. Verse seven, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. He recognizes how God has carried him, how God has helped him, how God has walked him through things. And in the shadow of your wings, he sings for joy. It's in that moment we have to always appreciate that we sit under the wings of our Heavenly Father. 
He's providing us shade. He's providing us rest, even in the direst of situations. One of the most striking verses to me is to realize in the New Testament that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is always to be restraining the evil one. So in your worst moment, when you feel like Satan's just lashing out at you and owning you, appreciate the Holy Spirit's holding him back. You're not going to get holding him back. God's protecting you. He's giving you a shadow to rest in. And this was David's hope. This was his rock that he was clinging to. In fact, in verse 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. It's amazing to me that this is an imperial psalm, per se. That reading through it, you find all these situations where guys are saying, this psalm is pertinent for every life. It's for every situation. Several older church fathers wrote about this. You should sing it every day in church. You should memorize it. This should be what you pray every night before you go to bed. And yet when you put it back in the context of Samuel or David's life, you find he's going through an incredibly hard situation. And that's what's so crazy about this psalm to me. It's why it's a psalm from the wilderness. Because David in this really hard place has located himself in the love of the Father. It's not about the situation. It's about who God is. It's about how God will carry him forward. It's about appreciating who God is in the midst of our storms. And that's why in verse 9, going forward, David isn't just claiming that God is his God. And he's not just claiming that God will be his satisfaction. He's also claiming his confidence in the Lord. That God will carry him through this. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. David appreciates in this moment that he'll be called out of it, that God will deliver him. Now, he doesn't say how long it's going to last. There's no promise in Scripture. You call out to the Lord, and like a snap, he pulls you out of an addiction, or he pulls you out of a bad relationship, or he pulls you out of some mess you've dug in really deep to get into. But it does tell you he'll get you out. That God will provide for you in your dry and desolate and desperate place by who he is and by his character, and he will bring you healing. That doesn't mean it happens in this earth. It could very well happen in the next life. That's why our hope is in Jesus. Those who seek to destroy my life will go down into the depths of the earth. All those who oppose me will be put away. And process that in David's life. He's hiding from a man who's trying to kill him who happens to be his son. David sees how God is going to deliver him. How God is going to put away his enemies. 
They shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be apportioned for the jackals. By the way, according to tradition, jackals were always found in the wilderness. These animals that were hunting him would eat those that were pursuing him. David has incredible confidence that God will carry him through this. It's not his mighty men. It's not his smarts. It's not his wisdom. It's not the answers he can put together. It's not seeking the right friendships. It's God. God was his confidence. It's why in verse 11, but the king, the king lowercase refers to David, the king himself shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. For we do not battle against flesh and blood. Our war is not against people on this earth. It's about the evil one who opposes us in all that we do. The king rejoices in God, puts his hope in God. Just process how David walks through the situation. Situation and circumstances is wilderness, God, wilderness, God, wilderness, God. Where will I'm at overtake me? Will it overwhelm me? Will it own me? Will it be God? Will I be stirred? Will I be shaken? Will I be beat up? Will I be cast out? Will it be God? It's the beauty of this psalm. Then this really harsh and dry place. David puts his hope in the king of kings, our God. Puts his hope, his confidence in him. Recognizes that he is the only thing that will ever satisfy. He's the only thing we could actually put our confidence in. That it won't be getting out of this, it won't be getting out of that. It's God. This morning... We were working through Psalm 63, a psalm from the wilderness. And if you're in a dry and desolate place, may this psalm be yours. And may you be reminded of who God is and how he's loved you and how he's cared for you and how he's met your needs. And may you be built up in the body of the church and be wise about that. The church is the gathered place of those who are redeemed in Jesus. Not one of us has nailed it. Not one of us is perfect. So find somebody. Put your arm around them and say, I'm desperate. I'm dry. I'm desolate. Walk with me. That's why we gather. And if you're not in a wilderness this morning, if you're not a dry place and your cup is overflowing... You're absolutely the right person to stand next to the dry guy. Have your eyes open for who might need you, for who might need you to pour life into them this morning. He is our God. He has claimed us, and we are his people. He's the only thing that satisfies us, He's the only thing we can put our confidence in. Let me pray for us. 
Father, as we consider this 63rd Psalm, Father, that your son David wrote, Father, we are reminded that our lives are not perfect. And in fact, we weren't promised that they would be. That many of us find ourselves in hard, dry, and desolate situations and circumstances. In fact, Father, many of us are struggling even this morning. So, Father, we cling to you. You are our rock, and you are our anchor. Regardless of whether we're sinking in the ocean or in quicksand, Father, allow us to cling to you. May who you are and your character be the only thing we turn to to uphold us. May we find our satisfaction and our confidence in you. God, we love you so much. And we're so thankful for the work of your son. That by his death, all of our sins could be forgiven. That by his death, we would be redeemed. And you would be our father. We claim you, God. Amen.